Welcome to BIO, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. BIO is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for biography as a genre with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm BIO member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. On each episode, we'll talk with a biographer about his or her work. This time, award-winning author and University of Michigan history professor Paulina Alberto talks about her new biography, Black Legend, The Many Lives of Raul Guerra and the Power of Racial Storytelling in Modern Argentina. It was published by Cambridge University Press in January of this year. Paulina Alberto was interviewed by fellow biographer and bio member Kitty Kelly. Professor. Would you start by giving us just a short premise of your biography? Yes. So in one sense, this story is a biography of a false character, a character who was defamed and was scripted by many white storytellers who essentially created this Black character, El Negro Raul, based on broader narratives of race, of disappearing Blackness, and triumphant whiteness in Argentina, which for most of the late 19th century and all of the 20th century saw itself as a country without Afro-descendants. So in a sense, it's a biography of that false character through a series of stories that were told about him repeatedly over time. But what the book really tries to do that's new is not just to expose those stories and the ways that they track dominant ideas about race and anti-Black ideologies, but to tell a truer biography, one founded in historical archives, of the historical man, Raúl Grijera, the defamed character of these stories. And in the process of telling that history of the historical man, Raúl Grijera, the book also tells a new story of Black Argentina, of Black presence throughout the 19th, 20th, and 21st centuries. But in Buenos Aires, there seems to be only 3% of the population identifying as Afro-Argentina. Is that correct? That is true. It's very small. In the last census of 2010, there was a sort of trial census that only was distributed to small areas in the city. And it did come out with a very low, sort of between 3 and 4% Afro-Argentine population. But that small number is precisely the result of the kinds of dynamics that I'm examining in the book, which is that there is a story that Afro-Argentines disappeared. And there is some truth to that story if by disappeared we mean rendered invisible, in part because the idea that it was possible to be both Black and Argentine was something that was undermined through various processes over the course of the 19th and 20th centuries. So many people either don't know that they have African descent or didn't know to claim it and to put it forth as something that they should highlight or be proud of. So part of what the newer census needs to do, the census that was planned for 2020 but has been postponed because of the pandemic, part of what Black activists have tried to do is to help raise consciousness about the processes that made Afro-Argentines invisible and sort of help educate people who might have Black ancestry to signal that on the census. You say in your book, though, that 
it was shameful to identify as Afro-Argentina. Is that correct? It depends when, but there were many Afro-Argentine people who were extremely proud of being Afro-descendant, of the role that Afro-descendants had played in building the country and fighting its wars and being active political citizens, writers, artists, right? Everything. So there was pride in the Afro-Argentine community. The shame that I refer to was often tied to certain kinds of ways of referring to Blackness, right? So for example, the term negro, which in Spanish literally means the color Black, but was also a term that was used to talk about people who were of African descent. And since the colonial period was very closely tied to enslavement and in the Spanish-American caste system, it was the most debased position on the social hierarchy. So that term was one that Afro-Argentines often chose not to identify with, and in fact, would distance themselves from in other ways. But that didn't mean that they were ashamed of their own African ancestry. It's just that they were reluctant to identify with a term that had essentially been taken over by white Argentines and imbued with all kinds of sort of hateful stereotypes. So that's what you mean by Black legend? Well, Black legend has several layers. So I'm playing on the one hand with this story of the supposed disappearance of Afro-Argentines, right? The notion that Argentina either never really had a Black population, which is one kind of popular interpretation today. You talk to a lot of Argentines and they will tell you, oh, our country is very different from most of the rest of Latin America because we had neither a very large indigenous nor a very large Black population. These things are not exactly true, but that is one interpretation. Another interpretation is, oh yes, Argentina did have more of a substantive Black population in the colonial period and in the 19th century, around the time of Argentine independence, which took place between 1810 and 1816. Up to 30% of the population of Buenos Aires was Black or mulatto, Afro-descendant. And in parts of the country's interior, especially in the Northwest, the proportion was as high as 50%. So some people acknowledge that, but they say over the course of the late 19th century and into the 20th, Black people disappeared. And the kinds of explanations that are typically given for this supposed disappearance are Black people were conscripted into wars and they died disproportionately in the wars. Other people say they were more disadvantaged and lived in poor areas. They were more susceptible to disease. And so they were sort of slowly wiped out in the epidemics in the 19th century. And then other people say, well, you know, Argentina received many millions of European immigrants between the late 19th and early 20th century. And that these immigrants essentially mixed in with and eventually overwhelmed the very small Black population. So those are the the traditional explanations. What happens essentially is that the Argentine state in the 19th century becomes very committed to a view of official racelessness. And so in important population counts, like especially the national census, they stop counting by race. So it actually becomes very difficult to know how many Afro-Argentines there are. And little by little, once Argentine identity gets increasingly associated by dominant thinkers and politicians with a kind of pride in European heritage and culture and whiteness, 
this is when the pressures that I talk about to become white, to leave aside blackness, not only is it difficult to claim a formal black identity, but people also begin to seek to unmark themselves as having African ancestry. But I use black legend to talk about this myth of disappearance, this kind of falsehood that has installed itself in the Argentine imagination and in you know, foreigners' imagination about Argentina. But at the same time, I use it to put forth this new story of black presence and black celebrity and black self-fashioning, which is the story of Raul Grijera, my book's protagonist, who made himself into kind of a, a celebrity and a fixture of the bohemian nightlife of Buenos Aires in ways that were briefly recognized, but have never been given their due. You know, you've done something that most biographers would kill to do, and that is to find a character who had never been written about before. How did you find this character? I encountered Raul for the first time in Argentina's National Archive. I had just finished writing a book about Black intellectuals in 20th century Brazil. And Brazil has the largest Black population outside of Africa. It has a really important Black movement, probably the most dynamic in Latin America. So when I turned toward Argentina in the 20th century, I'm from Argentina originally, and I wanted to do something similar for my own country to write about Afro-Argentines in the 20th century, I realized there was almost nothing to work with. So I thought, well, I'm going to go see what the National Archive has. And they don't have many holdings for the 20th century, but they do have a pretty incredible photographic collection that is organized by topics. And they had one topic that was at the time Negros. They have changed that topic because as I mentioned, that is a very offensive term to Afro-Argentines. So I believe they changed it to Afrodescendientes or Afro-Argentinos or Afroamericanos. They sort of went through various permutations. Anyway, I went to that section of the file catalog and I found this astonishing picture of this man, the man who is on the cover of my book, Raul Grijera, in all his glory, you know, wearing a, a suit and a jaunty straw hat and, and a cane and these lustrous shoes and this luminous white flower in his lapel. And I thought, who is this man? And I then found other pictures of him from later in his life. And these were far less positive in a sense. They were him wearing rags, being persecuted by the police. And an even later set of photos where he was in some kind of institution being flanked by men with white coats. And so I could tell there was an amazing story here and I could tell that he had been famous, but it wasn't clear to me why. And I turned over one of the photos and I saw a little bit of a newspaper article. And there, were, there was enough of the newspaper article and a couple of handwritten notes on the back that I was able to figure out the newspaper and the year. And then I went and searched that newspaper until I found that photo of him, the one I was holding in my hand had been taken precisely to be included in this newspaper. And that was my one of my first findings about Raul. And from there, I started to collect everything I could, did an enormous amount of searching digitally. And as you know, nowadays, it's a lot easier to search for one person because so much has been digitized. So little by little, I started finding out more about him. But I would say that for the first two years in which I researched and started amassing these stories about him in Argentina's print culture, none of these were accurate. 
I didn't know enough about him to know why they were inaccurate, but I could tell that they recapitulated all of the basic story of Black disappearance. It's not clear where he came from. He didn't really have a very big family. There was no community that he came out of. He just kind of materialized one day. He rose to fame, but nobody knows why. He couldn't possibly have done anything useful. That was kind of the presumption. He was famous for being famous, or at best, he kind of hung on to other people's fame. And then he was always being declared dead before his time. So I thought, this is fiction and really unimaginative fiction at that. So that led me to dig deeper. His celebrity, short-lived as it was, seems to be based on his race rather than his talent. From 1916 on, he was billed as El Negro Raul. Does this speak to the times or Argentina's racism? I ask that because for most of us who are not as well-read and as learned as you are, we associate all of those Nazis that hid in Argentina and were given refuge by the country. Yeah. And I mean, that's, so that's one perception of Argentina. The other one that Argentines themselves, Argentine authorities and writers and thinkers and eugenicists, right, have done a really good job of projecting abroad is this notion of Argentina as a kind of purely and homogeneously white and European country. And this, as I said, this was not coincidental. This was a very intentional image that Argentines tried to create. Is that eugenics of sorts? So it sort of evolved. It didn't, sometimes people look as early as 1845 and they read some of the classic texts by Argentine thinkers, like later president Domingo Faustino Sarmiento's classic book, Facundo, for instance, which has some very racist ideas about indigenous people and Afro-Argentines. And people often draw a straight line from that to kind of the eugenics movements of the 20s and 30s. I actually argue that it's it's more complicated than that. I think that the 19th century, especially mid-century, is really a moment where there are ideas about liberal racelessness and creating a notion of citizenship that is not marked by race that was, of course, a product of his time, right, and still riddled with exclusions around race and gender and age and so forth, but that does provide an opportunity for Afro-Argentines to imagine that they might be able to actually make claims against the state to be full citizens, and they do take advantage of that for a while. Things begin to shift with the rise of scientific racism across the Atlantic world. There is much more of of an attempt to increasingly focus explicitly on whiteness, on Europeanness, celebrating those traits, and increasingly degrading Blackness in a way that becomes especially sharp by the 1910s and 20s, where you can see all kinds of anti-Black ideologies. And by the 1930s, when Argentina is in a military dictatorship, there is an obsession with fascist eugenics inspired by Italy. The generals who are running Argentina actually send Argentine scholars to Italy to learn about eugenicist ideas and techniques. And it's not always framed as being explicitly anti-Black. That was not their main concern because by then Black people were not a very large portion of the population. But if you look at the writings of these thinkers from the early 20th century through maybe the 1930s, you can see that anti-Black racism is really at the core of a lot of their ways of thinking about other groups. 
about indigenous people, about mestizos, about Jewish people. So anti-Black racism in some ways, which gets carried over from the 19th century, even as Afro-Argentines are uh, sort of declared to have disappeared, continues to influence eugenicist thought and ways of excluding other groups. In some ways, Argentina sort of stands out from its Latin American neighbors because it was able to project this idea of whiteness and then because of these things that we know like giving refuge to Nazis. But Raul was in part famous because of his race because he was seen in some ways as representing a group that was beginning to become, if not really in reality, then in the popular imagination, a rarity. It was starting to become rarer for Black people to occupy these positions of fame in early 20th century Argentina, not because they weren't present, but in many ways because these structures of discrimination were increasingly locking them out of a lot of positions that they had previously occupied. Professor, what was his talent? Was it singing? Was it dancing? Storytelling? All of the above? Yes, I think many of the above. So when I first started writing this biography of the man versus the biography of the collective character that people had created, I knew that he had been famous in his own right. He was presented by the stories as this kind of buffoon, sort of mentally incompetent person who was incapable of making a living and therefore had to sell himself to the highest bidder as an entertainer and a clown and take their abuse, right? And I realized very quickly that that was not true because he was on the cover of tangos. He was an actor in a film and then his figurine rendered in clay appeared in another film. You know, there were many sort of much more positive representations of him from before 1916. But at first I thought that he was part of this bohemian world in which there was kind of an appropriation of blackness, a fascination with blackness, right? Buenos Aires was very much in contact with Paris in this period. And this was a period in which Josephine Baker was all the rage. And I thought that he was just an interesting character who was charismatic and was gorgeous and presented himself really nicely. He was a black dandy. He, he was just a fixture of the nightlife. But maybe three quarters of the way into writing the book, it clicked for me that he was a dancer and a musical entrepreneur. And so, you know, I started to reconstruct the musical history of his family. So his great-grandfather had been, as you know, a founder mm -hmm. of a famous candombe, which was an Afro-Argentine cultural association, originally with some religious components, but increasingly becoming something a bit more, more secular and more focused on gathering the community and dance and in, in sociability. His grandfather then took over that candombe, led it as a pianist, which was really a discovery for me because that kind of provides a connection between candombe and tango that many people have speculated about, but that it was extremely exciting for me to be able to locate in Raul's family, that his family had sort of contributed to this transformation. His father participated in and possibly led a kind of raucous musical society, the Society of Strange Animals is what they called themselves, and they all had animal code names. Um, and these were Afro-Argentine musicians who were classically trained and were virtuosic. I mean, they were some of the best musicians in the city and in the world. Some of them were, you know, sent to Europe to train and then came back and became really well-regarded musicians in Argentina who trained generations of, you know, white Argentine musicians. But in their spare time, they got together and they had these parties and they played 
popular music, but they did it with their excellent training as classical musicians. And Raul grew up in this world, right? I, I found one, to me, precious article from Buenos Aires' Black Press describing a very rare description of one of these parties of this musical society that Raul's father participated in. And this party was held in Raul's childhood home. And it describes a kind of music and a kind of dancing very similar to what would become the Argentine tango. You know, and this is all happening in Raul's very young childhood. So you kind of have to fill in the gaps because I don't have every piece of the puzzle, but I have enough dots to kind of connect that he, I think, learned to dance, perhaps to play some of this music, but certainly to organize these kinds of dances. And so later I find him in 1915, once he was a figure of the nightlife, he had already appeared on the cover of certain tangos that were dedicated to him. And he is himself helping to organize these dances that are alternately referred to as candombes for the people of color and just as tangos, right? So it's unclear whether these are black dances or black dances in which white people are participating. But what's clear is that there's a connection here between the candombe musical style of Afro-Argentines, the emerging tango, which many people acknowledge has black roots, but which becomes increasingly whitened precisely around 1916. And so this kind of shows us a last moment of the ways in which Afro-Argentines were essential participants in shaping the thing that becomes tango as late as 1915, even though they very quickly thereafter get written out of the story. And I think Raul was kind of a master of ceremonies and an entrepreneur who organized these dances. But I think Raul is a much more of a kind of cautionary story, in, in a way, a, a sadder story of how Argentina's dominant racial narratives really suffocated the dreams and the possibilities that, that Black Argentines might have had. And Raul is just a, a kind of an extreme example of that, right? And this is the thing that I show in the book that the ways people started to deform the story about him actually ended up changing his life. So the stories did not reflect a downturn in his life. Stories that were told about him drove his life in a kind of downward spiral that ended with him being homeless, disparaged, and later forgotten. And I think that this trajectory is not uncommon for many Black celebrities in the Americas except for some who are able to escape through travel or through enormous hard work and some amount of fame. When I finished reading your book, I found it to be more of an exposition and an indictment of Argentina's racism than a biography of this lovely looking man who came to his small amount of fame by talent. Is that fair to say? I would hope that it's both. It's hard because as much material as I did find on Raul, and I found a lot, so I was dogged in my search. But you're right, the odds are really stacked against being able to flesh out his life as much as I would have liked. I think I, I flesh it out quite a bit, but it's always against the backdrop of on the one hand, put him forward as a Black legend, right? A Black celebrity. Really talk about the man, his experiences, his family, right? Going back three or four generations, this amazing family. But it's always, in a sense, 
swimming upstream against these disparaging stories about him, which outweigh the material that exists about the historical character. And yes, the broader racism of Argentine society, which I'm very keen to indict. You say that you were dogged in your search. How long did it take? You mentioned that you moved back to Argentina from the United States. Yeah, well, I mean, I started the research here in the U.S. and I did as much as I could from here, you know, searching in uh, text searchable databases are incredible. I mean, this, I have a little paragraph at the end of the book where I talk about the fact that this project took me over 10 years from beginning to end, but it would have taken a lifetime, right? If I had had to sort of flip through endless magazines and newspapers. Um, I found a couple of interviews with him that gave me some clues of places to look. I searched in Argentina's National Archive for anything I could find about his parents. And very early on, I had the good luck of finding their probate records. And that turned up an enormous number of records about this family going all the way back to the early 19th century and pointing me to uh, enslaved family members. And sort of, I was able to kind of flesh out that whole part of the story. And then I found a clue in one interview that Raul gave later in his life saying that his father had locked him up in an infamous reformatory. And when I asked Argentine colleagues, you know, are there any records for this place? They said, oh, no, no, that place is still functioning. You know, it's essentially a jail for young men. Like you can't get in there. They have no records. And if they do, you know, you'll never find them. And I had the enormous good fortune of talking to the mother of one of my children's school friends. She was from this town, Marcos Paz. And I said, oh, that's so interesting. You know, the person I'm writing about appears to have spent some time at a reformatory there. And she said, oh, I'm childhood friends with the woman who is currently the assistant director of this place. And so one thing led to another and they discovered his file. And it was just incredible because it, it just opened a window onto that whole chapter in his life. And then, you know, I was dogged and persistent trying to get his police records. The Argentine police does not share its records. And I persisted. I visited the, the director of the archive, who was a very high-ranking police officer. And uh, it just so happens that he has a passion for comic strips. And the fictional Raul was the protagonist of Argentina's first major comic strip in 1916. And so we started talking about that. And after maybe two years of hoping that he would send me a transcription of Raul's police files, I got them. So I just had an enormous amount of good fortune. But frankly, I, I was kind of obsessed with tracking down everything I could. Wouldn't you say that that is paramount to a biographer, obsession? That's right. I mean, I think all historians have some amount of that, but I think when you're doing a biography, the person whose life you're trying to reconstruct becomes real to you in a sense. And, and they, it feels like they're by your side in a way, or they have taken up residence in your mind and in your soul in a sense. And you want to do whatever you can to, I don't know if you write by them because I'm not sure that's what I did, but I wanted to put in the effort and I wanted to find what I could, that I could tell the story that felt true to me, that felt dignified and that felt important and urgent. That was Latin American history professor and author Paulina Alberto, speaking with fellow biographer and bio member Kitty Kelly about her book, 
black legend, the many lives of Raul Guerra, and the power of racial storytelling in modern Argentina. It was published by Cambridge University Press in January 2022. This interview was recorded online via Zoom on May 19th of this year. To learn more about Bio or to hear other episodes in our podcast series, please visit our website, biographersinternational.org. I'm bio member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. Alani Hodge created our theme music. And until next time, thanks so much for listening and have a fantastic day. <laughs>